0: Okay, we're going through a series um, through the book of 1 Samuel, and I know some people might have thought, well, we're getting getting close to Christmas, so when are we going to shift gears to the Christmas message? But if you hold with me, even through this passage, which doesn't seem like it would be very Christmassy, there's a total awesome Christmas payoff at the end. So just be patient. This might feel like mixing um, oil and water, but it's going to work out. Um, I am slowly wanting to wean us away from hyper-dependence on the projector. So grab a Bible, bring your own Bible, pull up 1 Samuel 4 on your phone. There are sermon notes that are out there. I'll be increasingly only highlighting certain parts of the passage, but want us to be engaging the word. You want to be um, using a new international version for the translation. That's the one that I'm using, although a lot of them will be able to follow along more or less. So, introducing chapter 4, there's a big scene shift that happens. If you were watching a movie, the first three chapters focus on Hannah and the rise of Samuel. And then in chapter 4, boom, camera cuts to something else completely. And we're shifting the attention from Samuel to the Ark of God, to the Ark of the Covenant. And now we live in a world where most people are more familiar with the Ark of the Covenant because of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark than they are with the actual Bible, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll pick it up and run from there. But this is one of the famous, the next few chapters have some of the most famous ark stories in uh, the Bible. Really, really cool. So verse one says, Samuel's word came to all Israel. So it's saying that Samuel's influence and his prophetic utterances from God are spreading north, south, east, and west to all of Israel. And then we shift scenes. Now the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines. You've probably heard of the Philistines because there's a famous story in 1 Samuel of David going up against the Philistine Goliath. And at this point in the history of God's story, we've been in the promised land of Canaan for about um, 200 years, and the Philistines have been Israel's big enemy while they're in this place. You have certain... Um, empires or nations that stand in for the enemies of God. You know, first we're introduced to Pharaoh and Egypt. They're the big baddies in Exodus. And then later on, in about another 500 years from where we are, and where we are in Samuel is about 1, 1100 BC, so about a thousand years before Jesus. Then in another 500 years, you're going to get another big baddie revealed as the kingdom of Babylon. And in between, the Philistines occupy this consistent source of stress and distress and warfare uh, for God's people. And the Philistines kind of continually harass Israel. And so bracketed between Egyptian oppression and Babylonian oppression and exile, you've got the Philistines. And if we go to the next slide, here's a a geographical uh, outlay of the land of Israel. And what's important here is that... um, Israel is sort of divided into strips of territory that goes uh, north to south. You have the coastal plain, the Shephelah, the mountains, and the wilderness. And why this is important is because whenever Israel and the Philistines clash, it's usually in the place called the Shephelah, which means lowlands, low-lying areas. You had the coastal plains. There was a Via Maris, a massive trade route, kind of like the superhighway of the ancient world. And the Philistines, as you're going to see in a moment, had a, a number of uh, cities that were kind of fortified cities set up there. And they wanted to dominate trade in the ancient world. So they kind of had the coastal plain. The Shephelah was kind of like no man's land. And then the mountain and wilderness was where most of Israel lived. That's where you get like Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And you get a lot of cities along that route. And uh, this, was, this became a picture for resistance to worldly ways of acting and thinking. Because ancient rabbis would um, take this the geography of Israel and ask God's people, who's winning the Shephelah? Are the Philistines? Are the values of the Philistines encroaching on our territory? Or are we taking the fight to them? Who's winning the Shephelah? The Shephelah became a metaphor for those places in our lives where the values of God Conflict with the values of the world and who's going to win. And geographically it was set up. Now if you take that map and kind of tilt it a little bit this way. You can see those little fortified cities. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, uh, Ekron, and Gath. Those are all Philistine fortified cities. So that they can control the major economic trade route. Then you got the Shephelah. And then in the uh, mountain and wilderness area. You're getting uh, Jerusalem, uh, Bethlehem, Hebron. So that's a different way of looking at this map. And the reason why I'm showing it to you is the battle that is going to happen is occurring. Remember our story stories that the tabernacle is in Shiloh? So that's in the upper right-hand corner. So that's in the wilderness area. And then you've got Aphek, which we're going to read about today. That's where the Philistines attack from. And we read about this in, um, in the next sentence. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, which they think, they don't know, but they think was between Aphek and um, Shiloh, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, but as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. So this is a really bad route. When the soldiers returned to camp, The elders of Israel said, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that He may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Had a battle. Thought they were going to win. They're God's people. Why wouldn't they win? He's the true and living God. They lose. That's brutal. Oh, I know. There's the ark. And the ark is kind of the footstool of God's presence. It's a visible manifestation of God's glory. We'll bring that and that's going to, more than even the odds, that's going to tip the scales and we'll, we'll route the Philistines. Now again, for those of you who don't know much about the Ark of the Covenant, it's, it's kind of a box, four foot in length uh, by two feet. Uh, there's a one pictorial representation of it. It's built before Israel's journey into the wilderness. It provided the center for, the, for their worship. It was constructed of wood. It was plated in gold. Its lid was solid gold and, and the lid was called the mercy seat. And there were two angels or cherubim that were on either end and they framed the space around the mercy seat where um, God's word and presence and power was to be honored. And the ark contained three items, the tablets of stone that Moses had delivered to the people of Israel, the Ten Commandments, a jar of uh, manna from the wilderness for years of wandering, and Aaron's rod that had budded. And so these three symbols represented that God had commanded them to be a nation, that was the tablets, and the manna represented that God provided for them in the wilderness and brought them to the promised land, and that God had saved them. That was Aaron's budding rod. And after their entrance into the, uh, the promised land, that, uh, that ark gets placed in the sanctuary, the tabernacle in Shiloh. And this ark is seen as very powerful by the Israelites because it's the manifestation on one level, symbolic manifestation of God's presence. And in verse 4, it talks about the ark. We'll read about it in a moment. It talks about the ark as being um, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is enthroned between the cherubim. So the Israelites are thinking, well, we lost the battle, but that's because God wasn't like, I mean, God was with us, kind of like in spirit, but now we could actually bring God with us because he's enthroned between the angels. And so the ark stood in as a representation for Yahweh's presence and power. Now what's interesting here is that when they say, let him come among us and save us, right? they say, let us bring the ark um, from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us. The Hebrew there is neutral, meaning in in terms of um, what it's referring to. So it could be read as he, God, may go with us and save us. Or it could be read as, let's bring the ark so that it will go with us and save us. Your translation has to pick one or the other. Um, But I think it's a little bit gracious to presume given the story of Israel's rebellion and how estranged they are from God that they're actually trusting in God to deliver through the ark. I think they see the ark as a magical uh, power machine, a nuclear option. And they're like, oh, if we have the ark, it will save us. It will bring us victory. Now, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because either way, what they're essentially doing is forcing God's hand. They're saying, we lost. We didn't have the ark with us. But if we bring the ark, God has to give us the victory. Because if we bring the ark, which is the very presence of God, into a battle and the bad guys win that would mean their God is more powerful than our God. A conquered God is a weak God. And a God who allows him and his people to be captured is obviously under the authority and power of another God. So they're kind of doing the divine math and saying, ours is the living God. So even if we're not on the best talking terms with them right now, he has to protect his own honor. He'll fight for us because he has to. Because he would never let himself suffer the humiliation of having the Philistines win. So they're like, "This is no fail plan." The ark is our religious ace in the hole. Verse four. So the men sent. So sorry, the people sent men to Shiloh. They're like, "Get the ark, bring it over here to Ebenezer." They do. Um, They bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. So that's the full title of the Ark. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. And hearing the uproar, the Philistines said, what's all the shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid a god has come into their camp nothing oh no nothing like this has ever happened we're doomed who's going to deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods they're the gods who struck the egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness so they have this kind of weird fuzzy view of they've heard about this god but they call it a singular god but then many gods and they know it's connected to egypt but they're just scared because they're like this god has power like we've heard the legends be strong, Philistines. They go to the soldiers and they say, Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Buzh. So the Philistines fought. And the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. It's a routing. The ark, uh, sorry, the slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Massive escalation of losses from the first battle without the ark. They bring the ark, worse losses. The ark was captured. So when, all, when the battle was lost, they couldn't even retreat and get the ark back to Shiloh. The ark is captured by the Philistines and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died on the same day. And that was part of God's curse, if you remember from chapter 2. He said, told Eli that both of your sons are going to die on the same day. And this is part of that fulfillment. Verse 12, that same day a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust in his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told them what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what's the meaning of this uproar? And the man hurried over to Eli and said, sorry, the man hurried over to Eli who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. And he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. Like he's panting, right? I've just come from the battle line and I fled from it this very day. And Eli's like, what happened? Like, what's the report? He's getting the vibe in the air. This is not good. Tell me what happened. And the man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered great heavy losses. And also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark has been captured. And when he, Eli, sorry, when the messenger mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and he was heavy and he had led Israel for 40 years. So we're seeing this really strange event and you can see God's kind of house cleaning at work where there's been corruption to a scale where God says I am transitioning out one leadership and I'm going to install Samuel. But that's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to be a painless and pretty process either. So Hophni and Phinehas get taken care of. Eli gets taken care of. God is doing a house cleaning. Then verse 19, his daughter-in-law. So Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of her delivery. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but she was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, one of the women attending her said, don't despair. You've given birth to a son. Like you're dying, but you don't have to despair. You've given birth to a son. But it says that um, the daughter-in-law of Eli didn't respond, didn't pay attention, probably in shock with blood loss. In verse 21, she named the boy Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark and the death of her father-in-law and her husband. There's a number of poetic connections here because when she says, I'm naming my son Ichabod because the glory has left Israel, the word for glory in Hebrew is um, is kavod, K-A-V-O-D, and it has this um, sense of like density or deep importance. It's weighty with significance. But when Eli falls over on his chair, it says that he was heavy. And the word there is kabod, K-A-B-O-D, which means like overweight. And so there's this play on words like the heaviness, the weight, the weighing down, the burden, the leaders who have grown fat on exploitation and corruption. They're being brought to an end. And God is actually replacing that glory for His own. But in her eyes, what well, all she sees is the glory has departed. My husband, my father-in-law, my connection to that power structure. you got a good life if you're uh, marrying into that family. And so she names her son Ichabod. The ark has been captured. The very heart of Israelite life and worship. And so now we're seeing this um, tragic but necessary build of house cleaning so that Samuel and a new priestly leadership can take their place in Israel. And so chapter 4 ends on this, what would have been for the Israelites a massive cliffhanger. Battle, loss. Don't worry, we've got the ark. Battle, loss, part two. Massive scale and tragedy, including... The loss of the ark, it's captured by the Philistines. The glory is gone, which implies a follow-up question. Can you ever get it back? Like, how could they? Their best shot was battling the Philistines with the ark. The Philistines now have the ark. How would you ever get it back? And so, in a way that we probably can't understand, the thing that was most, or one of the things that was most precious to their identity As God's people has been snatched out from under them. The glory is gone. And when they say the glory is gone, they mean hope has just, the air has been, the air of hope has been sucked out of the room. And you're staring down the barrel of hopelessness. Now, here is where the story, that story, connects to Christmas. But it's not, I want to, you know, recognize it. it's not an obvious tie in, but it's there because this story actually gives you a really powerful insight into the love of God and the gospel. Let's reframe what's happening. God's people, for hundreds of years, have been in rebellion, they've been rejecting God's authority over their lives, they've been ignoring God. They have been actively disobedient. And not just like in the disobedience of like, oh, I didn't know this was wrong. There is tremendous, intentional, proactive disobedience and corruption. And it's being kind of spearheaded by those in leadership who should not only know better, but but who should be veering the people away from disobedience to obedience. And one of the promises that God says, and it's a promise, in Deuteronomy, before they enter the land, is essentially, if you follow me, I will bless you and prosper you. If you don't follow me, a curse will be on you and you will be exiled from my presence. I know the plans I have for you. I have good plans and purposes for you, but they are contingent upon whether or not you cooperate with me. If you do, things are going to go well for you. I will prosper you in the land. If you don't, things are not going to go well for you. And so, what is under... The fear when someone says something like the glory has departed from Israel and when we understand that the glory is sort of synonymous with God's presence is a fear that God has abandoned His people. That God has said, you guys made your bed. I've taken you here but no further. You want to do it without me? No problem. And what that would mean when God retracts his presence is not that God would leave. What Israel thought would happen is they would be exiled out of the land because that land was a gift to them. So you get to come into the land as long as you are uh, cooperating with me and serving me. But if you don't serve me, you're getting kicked out. Now think about this story. For hundreds of years they've been disobedient. They lose a battle. They lose another one with the ark. The ark gets captured. What is actually happening at 30,000 feet? Israel should be the ones who are being captured by the Philistines. Who's captured by the Philistines in the story? The ark, which is a stand-in symbolically for God. God allows himself to get captured. God, actually, um, in the text, uh, let me go back. Yeah, when Eli's daughter-in-law says, the glory has departed from Israel, the word departed is the same word as exiled. So what she's saying is the ark has been exiled from Israel. And again, poetically and theologically there's a recognition there that wait a second, we're supposed to be exiled if we disobey God. But God's the one being exiled. God's the one being humiliated. We should be the ones being humiliated. The Israelite Persistence and idolatry and sin for hundreds of years led to a growing angst that if God was going to do something big in Israel, it would be He would exile His people from the land. They would be cut off from the land and all of its promises. But this is not actually what happens in the story. Instead of Israel going into exile, the ark does. Yahweh, God Himself says, all go into exile. On behalf of my people, I'll take the curse of the covenant on myself, so that they can live. And he does that by subjugating himself to tremendous humiliation. Because as that ark is being brought into Philistine territory, everyone is around that ark chanting, chanting um. Dagon, 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 God of the Philistines. We've won. Look how powerful our God is. Look how meager. This great God of the Israelites. What a joke. We just routed them. And now we're going to put, in the next chapter, we're going to put this ark underneath our God's um, statue so that their God will worship our God and the world will know who is truly God. So, God goes into exile on behalf of his undeserving, wayward, rebellious, lost people, subjects himself to deep humiliation, allows himself to be captured and shamed so that his people can have another chance. And maybe if it's framed that way, you can see how this connects to Jesus and how it connects to the cross. In Matthew 27, very famously, but three in the afternoon before he dies, Jesus cries out in a loud voice and he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I being exiled? And on the cross we see a picture of the fact that we've rejected God, we've ignored God, we should be the ones in exile, we should be the ones who are saying, God, God, why have you left? Why have you forsaken us? We should be the ones hung out to dry, we should be the ones carrying around our sin and shame. But it's Jesus who's gone into exile on our behalf on the cross. He's taken it. Not because we're worthy. Not because we did anything. we were religious, good enough, whatever it is, you fill in a blank. No, it's because of His great love for us. If you understand, the, if you kind of see the theme of exile in Scripture, one of the things that you'll notice is To be home in Jerusalem is to be in a place at the center of God's will and God's protection. And so in Matthew 27, when it says they led Jesus away, in the subtext there, because the whole story has been happening, in the city, they led Him away out of Jerusalem to crucify Him. Jesus gets crucified outside of Jerusalem. And then the big plot line of the Bible comes through to the end in Revelation 21 where what comes down out of heaven? A new Jerusalem. And who gets to go in it? Anybody who has yielded their lives and hearts to Jesus. Jesus gets exiled out of the city so that we have the chance to come in. Jesus allows himself to be captured fully by the forces of sin and death so that our bonds of slavery could be broken. He allowed himself to be publicly exposed and shamed and mocked so that we could be covered and dignified and honored. One of the great themes of Scripture is that of exile and homecoming. We were created to live with God, but there's been a distance, an alienation, an exile of sorts that has been created due to sin. But even in that exile, we still have a memory trace. We, we in a sense, remember the garden. We have a sense of what it was like to have relationship with God, and there's a longing in our hearts for home. But when the glory departs, can you ever get it back? And the good news is you can. There's a way back to the garden. There's a way back into shalom. There's a way back into right relationship with God. There's a way to be restored so that you are at home, no longer in exile. You're at home with your relationship with God. You're at home in your relationship with other people. You're at home in your relationship with your own sense of identity and self, and you're at home with your true calling and mission in the world. But that can only happen in and through Jesus. And see, that's what makes, that's part of, because it is just a fragment of the diamond of Christmas, that's part of what makes Christmas so powerful and beautiful. Because Christmas is the signal that coming home is possible that you don't have to live in exile spiritually here or in the world to come. Jesus voluntarily exiled himself in your place so that by trusting in him, you could come home. And so your days of exile could come to an end. So as we move towards Christmas, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Turn from the path of exile and darkness and turn to Jesus turn to His light and find hope and peace and love and joy rooted in Him, beginning now and extending out forevermore. Let's pray. God, may Your Word do a work in our hearts this morning. May the Gospel of grace and all that it reveals about Your goodness and kindness strike us in a new way. And may it cause us to live in a new way. Reaching out to those who are exiled in our lives and saying, there's a way to come home. You are loved, you are valued. Thank you for going into exile on our behalf, God. Amen.